Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Psycho Podcast, where we unravel all things human sexuality and challenge the misconceptions and stigmas surrounding different topics of psychology. I'm your host, Margot Underwood, so let's jump into it. Today, we're joined by Christopher DeFranco, a clinical mental health professional who works out of his own private practice. He specializes in treating suicidality and personality disorders amongst a plethora of other things. But I find these topics to be extremely important and common in today's time. Specifically, personality disorders of sociopathy and narcissism. We're going to go into a little bit about how he manages and works with these populations and how we should manage and respond to these people who we think might maintain a few of these traits. Hi, Christopher. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Margo. Thank Um, you for having me. Of course. I'm really excited to uh, cover all of these topics because um, considering the climate right now, I feel like a lot of people are going to benefit from the modalities that you um, find effective in your practice. So let's jump into it since we have so much to cover. Um, First, I just want you to tell us a little bit about who you are and your journey um, in the mental health field and kind of what your background looks like. Sure. Um, So I have been in this field for about 10 years now. I started with a bachelor's degree in psychology and child and family studies. And then I went and got my master's in clinical mental health counseling. Um, So from there, I started kind of some various internships that are required in order to get that counseling license. And my very first internship was at the LGBT center in Cleveland. So that kind of led to my first experience working with that population, getting a little bit more specialized experience. And then um, I worked in chemical dependency, substance abuse, domestic violence, and anger management. So a lot of work with impulse control, addictive behaviors, all that kind of stuff. Following that, uh, my first job was in community mental health. So pretty much kind of how everyone after grad school starts learning in the psych field. You work um, in the community. I worked in a high school. So I would be in the high school during the school year counseling students with pretty much any problem that anyone would experience over the course of their life. Depression, anxiety, ADHD, suicidality, gender, sexuality, all of that kind of stuff. And then I would also do home-based counseling and um, community-based counseling over the summer where we would go out and be able to practice some of the skills we would learn, especially social skills. Following, Yeah, it was really, it was a very new experience at first. It was very uncomfortable at first, but it actually created a more comfortable environment for a lot of my students to open up. We would go to the park Mm -hmm. and walk. And when you're not Mm -hmm. face to face with someone, it's a little bit easier for them to talk a little bit more vulnerably. Um, So that was a really interesting experience for me as my first job. And then following that, I went right into inpatient mental health, which is pretty much the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. Um, There I worked uh, with a more acute population. So people who have psychosis, things like 
bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and then personality disorders. So I worked on a unit with people who struggled with borderline personality disorder, narcissistic, and antisocial. And then following that, once I kind of felt like I had enough clinical knowledge working in a few different fields, both outpatient and inpatient, I explored private practice because that was always a goal that I had to kind of just be in control of my time and my job. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. um, I specialized in, again, working with kind of this population under the LGBTQIA plus umbrella. My practice that I worked for was the only practice in Cleveland that was contracted to do assessments and counseling for people who are undergoing gender transition. So my practice had a contract with the Cleveland Clinic, um, and it was founded by someone who was openly gay. And so it was a very um, comfortable environment for a lot of people to work through those kinds of things. Following that, because I'm the type of person that always likes to learn and keep going, I went into academia and supervision where I supervised um, grad students like yourself who were working to get their licensure. And I did research um, once I moved to Texas. So I worked on a, I didn't work for it for 10 years, but I worked on a 10 year longitudinal study on depression where we examined the onset, the severity of it. We followed people through the course of this 10-year period using things like structured clinical interviews, various assessments, biomarkers like blood, urine, stool samples, MRIs, EEGs, like this whole scope of stuff to give a really clear picture of kind of how depression is framed on both a psychological level and then biological level. Mm-hmm. And then um, COVID kind of interrupted some of our funding for that uh, grant and research. So we scaled the project down, which allowed me to go back into private practice. And now I am full-time virtual private practice. And as soon as the pandemic slows down and things get back to normal, I'll balance that with teaching yoga on the side, which is something that I'm also very passionate about. I love that. Yeah. So all over the place. Yeah. But still in alignment. Like I like how you focus on the, uh, how mental health also can affect your biological health um, and physiological health. I mean, it's just a lot of, I mean, that gets overlooked really easily. Um, It's not something a lot of people take into consideration. Uh, So we're going to, we're going to go into more about how you address that with your clients. Um, but I want to kind of zero in on some of the populations um, that you mentioned, such as suicidality, people struggling with suicidality and personality disorders. Um, uh, first, is a personality, this is a, this is a, a wild card here mm-hmm. is a personality disorder. Can it be developed over time? Like if you, cause some people are born with certain chemical imbalances, whereas can those be developed over time? Sure. So some people, like you said, have chemical imbalances. They have differences in the way their brain is formed and different things like mm-hmm. that. 
But more recently, certain personality disorders, we have seen an increase in the presentation of them. For example, borderline personality disorder, you hear a lot in the media, you hear a lot about people kind of diagnosing themselves with it or hearing that diagnosis from their counselors or doctors. And so that is one personality disorder or trait that I believe has somewhat of a social influence. I think because borderline personality disorder involves the way that we relate to each other and it involves a lot of very intense emotions back and forth, very hot and cold, um, extreme liking to extreme dislike. I think that things like technology and the way that we have started communicating differently socially has kind of impacted some of those traits. And now people are demonstrating kind of more significant responses to some things that they may not have experienced otherwise. Um, so it's a lot easier to just react now when you're not, when you're communicating over a computer or a text message. It's a lot easier to, when you get mad at someone, block them or ghost them or go to this mm -hmm. very extreme reaction to show how you're feeling. And then technology has also made it a lot easier for people to engage in attention-seeking behaviors, like posting things mm -hmm. on social media, like I'm so depressed or I feel hopeless, I feel suicidal. And those kinds of behaviors, even though those emotions may be very real, the attention-seeking aspect of it to kind of garner that support from other people is very characteristic of a BPD diagnosis. So I do think mm. that some of our technology and social interactions have maybe manifested the presence of it a little bit more. Yeah, this kind of just reinforces the the fact that the the understanding of personality disorders is always developing. Um, we're not like we're not at a place right now where we can say this is how you know this is it and this is how it will always be. Absolutely. Um, and one thing I tell a lot of my clients, especially when they have concerns about that or they hear these traits or these diagnoses like borderline or narcissistic, I tell them that you can have elements of these things. You can have traits that are similar, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have a personality disorder. A personality disorder mm -hmm. is when the culmination of those traits are kind of significantly impairing your functioning or your relationships or creating a level of emotionality that you're not able to cope with. Okay. Well, that's a good, good clarification. I kind of want to go into more of what, what specific traits, um, people who struggle with, um, antisocial and, um, BPD, Kind of what do those look like? Sure. So antisocial is what was previously referred to or sometimes still commonly referred to as sociopathic um, behaviors. So uh, someone who demonstrates antisocial tendencies typically lacks empathy or remorse for the things that they are doing to other people. So they kind of ignore this idea of right or wrong um, they antagonize and manipulate situations for their own benefit. And they're oftentimes 
very intelligent and calculated in a lot of their things. But the key factor for that is this kind of lack of empathy and disregard for the rights or feelings of other people. And then I just have a quick question is from what I understand, because I tend to attract these kinds of people in my life. Um, I, I dug a little bit deeper and um, it really helped with my understanding of these types of people um, that they they can understand how you're feeling, but because their prefrontal cortex is developed uh, differently mm -hmm. than ours, it, they physically cannot empathize with us. And it's not that they are like going out of their way to, you know, say whatever. I mean, they might, but it really helped me have a little bit more empathy for this population because um, I realized that it was just the way that their brain developed. Yeah. So they will be able to see a show of emotionality, like someone visibly being upset, but they will not attribute that or empathize with it and understand maybe how their behaviors have influenced it or things like that. And so mm -hmm narcissistic personality traits where someone has kind of like a high inflated ego, they're kind of very showy, that kind of stuff that differs from antisocial in the sense that antisocial requires kind of a history of these behaviors developing over time. So you oftentimes mm -hmm. see things in children where they have oppositional defiant disorder or different behavioral disorders where, um, things like fire starting, hurting animals, um, those kind of very extreme behaviors that tends to kind of lead towards this um, outcome of antisocial. So you see it a little bit earlier, or you at least see the trajectory starting with antisocial, whereas narcissistic and borderline can sometimes be influenced by more social or cultural or mm -hmm. whatever other mm -hmm. kind of interactions we experience. And then I know you asked about borderline personality disorder as well. So just to give you a quick rundown on that, one thing that is very characteristic of that that kind of separates it from these other diagnoses is that it's more based on the person's reaction to the stress rather than kind of what they are trying to achieve out of it. A narcissist is trying to demonstrate or feel kind of the best. They are trying to show that they are competent in everything. They nothing, they're never wrong, that kind of stuff. Someone with antisocial lacks that empathy like we talked about. Um, they don't have regard for rights of other people. People with borderline personality disorder struggle more with emotional regulation. So they understand empathy almost sometimes to too much of a degree because they feel things so intensely, but they lack the control over their behaviors and their reactions to things. So it's a little bit different. One is a little bit more behavioral and in response to relationships, whereas the other ones maybe are a little bit more kind of internalized and based on personal gain. And I think it's important to note too that it's, both of these, I mean, you can see someone who struggles with both of these at the same time, and then you can 
also say that they're both on a spectrum and like someone who's a sociopath isn't just straight up, you know, killing animals all the time, but they are just like everything else in this world. I think it's easy to just say that person's a sociopath without considering the fact that there is a spectrum associated with that label. There's different (laughs) levels of everything and there's different experiences that people have that lead to those outcomes. So some people may demonstrate behaviors as a result of traumas or things like that, that are not necessarily characteristic of a personality disorder. It's more of just a trauma response or a protective defensive Mm -hmm. response. Yeah. I'm sure that you see um, people with um, tumultuous backgrounds who, with these types of disorders, I'm sure that's common. Um, it would make sense. So let's get into the paraphilic populations that you had mentioned. First, I want to define what paraphilia, para, paraphilia is. Paraphilia. Yeah, exactly. Paraphilia. <laughs> and um, define what it is and then... Uh, give uh, examples of um, of things that would things that people would do that would fall into this category of a paraphilic. Sure. Person. So a paraphilia is basically an experience or an intense arousal to something atypical, something that is not necessarily another person or you know, um, certain kinds of, I guess, expected kind of normalized sexual behaviors. Um, So things like atypical objects, different situations, um, fantasies, behaviors, anything like that. So paraphilia is an odd diagnosis and it's a it's kind of hard to conceptualize at times because we're in this time kind of of sexual exploration and um sexual freedom again similar to like the 60s and 70s we're having that boom Mm -hmm. again so it's it's difficult to kind of discern whether something is considered disordered or considered normal because if something doesn't bother someone or distress someone and it's not creating any harm towards anyone else, who's to say that there's anything wrong with it just because they have a different interest. So the idea of paraphilia and this paraphilic diagnosis um, has changed over time. It used to include things like just being intensely aroused to non-human objects Um what else? Humiliation or um, being aroused by the humiliation or suffering of other people. So some of that SM type behavior. And then um, anything involving children and non-consenting partners. So as mm. time has gone on, we have learned that something like sadism and masochism can be arousing for people in a safe way as long as there's that communication there's not that violation of rights both people are consenting so there's been a lot of kind of change in the way that we conceptualize this so the way that i typically conceptualize it is that 
a paraphilia is pretty much anything that is non-traditional and that arouses someone sexually. Um, fetishes, kinks, like anything can kind of fall under that paraphilia umbrella. When it becomes disordered, it is because it is either creating significant distress in the other person, it's impacting their ability to form meaningful relationships, it impacts their daily functioning, they're not able to do their job or things like that, or it can also create legal consequences. So Mm -hmm. things like um, pedophilia and frauderism and those kinds of disorders, those still fall under this paraphilic disorder because they're violating the rights of others. It involves non-consenting partners, that kind of stuff. But something like um, exhibitionism, if, if there's a consenting partner that is interested in that and wants to explore what that is like, then there's nothing disordered about it, you know, unless you're doing Mm -hmm. it in public and breaking a law. So that's where Mm -hmm. I kind of relate and draw the line to things is if, if there is probably a legal consequence to that sexual behavior or that interest, then it probably is disordered in some way. It makes sense. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely dabble around with paraphilias. Um, And I had people in my life who were really worried about me at one point. Um, And it was hard to define or explain to them that, hey, look at, look at my life. Like, look at how I'm functioning in my Mm -hmm. daily life. I'm fine. Exactly. Um, You know, but I guess the societal norm is to think that if you're engaging in these type of abusive um, behaviors that you're mentally disturbed or something. And I think it's, it's my calling to normalize this kind of topic because, um, I'm so passionate about it. It really helped me. It just helped me be honest with who I am and helped, you know, reinforce other areas of my life where I can communicate more, set harder boundaries, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. It opened by normalizing something like sexuality and the large scope of interests that are involved with sexuality. We're able to help people be more vulnerable and communicate about their interests to their Mm -hmm. partners, which then creates better outcomes in relationships. You know, a lot of relationships Mm -hmm fail because there's miscommunication. I mean, there's other things that result in it, but generally if you communicate proactively with people and you're honest and authentic about who you are, you know, that is going to be met with some level of acceptance and understanding. And Mm -hmm. another example, like similar to what you talked about is something like OnlyFans and these things now that have developed, especially as the result of people losing jobs and finding alternative ways to make money. A lot of people are enjoying that process. They're enjoying the exhibitionism that comes along with that. There's a lot of interest in the voyeuristic aspect of seeing people's personal lives a little bit more and not seeing pornography in such a staged setting, but a more realistic Mm -hmm. setting. And so I think that is why the DSM, which is this diagnostic manual that psychologists use, is 
really moving towards a spectrum for almost every diagnosis, that there is no really right or wrong way to define it, that it's individualized and that you have to consider environmental circumstances, biological circumstances, all of that other stuff. Right. It's, it is curated. The diagnosis is curated to each patient. Um, no more, no more generalizing Mm -hmm. of, of the populations. So that's good to hear. Um, we're in a really transitional time with that. I feel, uh, so I like how you said you, when someone comes to you with a paraphilia, you try to normalize that topic with them Mm -hmm. and kind of open up the door for communication about it so that you can generate more honesty in in conversation too. I think that that's really, you know, I think if anyone out there was worried about um, someone in their life who had these, you know, abnormal interests, abnormal, I mean, I say that loosely because (laughs) who knows what normal is. Yeah, varied interests Um, is kind of how I describe it now. Cool. I like that. Uh, It would be of, of both parties benefit to just open the door for conversation about it rather than shut it down um, and accuse and generalize and stuff like that. I think that's great. And that's one thing I try Um, to do right from the start with clients is I try to explain to them a little bit of my background and the variety of people that I've worked with. And I almost make it very casual and tell them like, I've pretty much heard it all. So nothing that you say Mm -hmm. is going to shock me or surprise me. I come from a very non-judgmental place. So don't feel like you have to tiptoe around certain things because I want you to be able to talk about these things openly so that you can actually address whatever needs you have or whatever problems you want to fix. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's important. I You know, I really try to open up that space with people in my life too. And I usually start by telling them something about myself that is vulnerable um, so that they know that I'm not this perfect, you know, rendition of a human. Like, no, I'm weird and I, you know, I mess up. Mm -hmm. And so this is a safe space to talk about these things. Absolutely. Um, What are some of the... If someone was struggling with a paraphilia that was actually disrupting their day-to-day behavior, what kind of uh, modalities would you implement in practice with them? So there's limited research on outcomes for paraphilic disorders. And what a lot of the research has shown is that you can't necessarily eliminate um, these kinds of thoughts. So I was Mm -hmm. listening to this Buddhist monk guru, whatever you want to call him. And he described our brain from the perspective of mathematics. But what he said was that unlike mathematics, we cannot subtract. So we can only add and multiply. And if you think about that, once a thought is in your head, 
it's processed. You can't remove it. If I tell you to think mm-hmm. about a pink elephant, everyone's going to think about a pink elephant right now. You can't then say, I want to not think about that anymore. Your brain has already processed it. So for something like a paraphilia, someone has already experienced these things. They've already formulated a potential interest in it or been exposed to these kinds of experiences or Mm -hmm. um, visualizations or whatever it may be. So a lot of the work is kind of adding and multiplying new more adaptive behaviors and thought processes that help kind of help them work Mm -hmm. through it in a healthy way. Um, So cognitive behavioral therapy is a really good treatment approach to that because it helps you recognize, it helps you build awareness and recognize kind of some obsessive or maladaptive thoughts and then start to challenge them with either more rational thoughts or thoughts that, um, you want to work towards reinforcing. And then once you have the understanding of that thought process, then you start implementing certain behaviors that kind of match and reinforce um, those new thoughts that you want to add or the new ways of behaving or responding to sexual arousal. So that's the multiplication part. And the changing of the thought process is the addition of the new ways of thinking or behaving. Okay. I like that. Um, yeah, because I, I feel like, like, especially, I mean, the easiest example for this would be addiction. Mm -hmm. Like if someone wanted to stop drinking alcohol, the first thing they would want to do, the first thing they would think of doing is stop drinking alcohol. But typically that doesn't, um, solve the underlying issue that is at hand. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's really, really important to note. You can't just this whole like cancel culture stuff that's happening right now. Can't just cancel yourself and be like, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. Exactly. Um, yeah. You got to put in that, that, that hard work. Mm-hmm. And you have to um, also identify how these experiences are affecting you emotionally, because there's a lot of emotional regulation that goes into this reducing anxiety and learning those skills so that when it is difficult or when someone is triggered, they know how to work through that stress during that trigger so that they can en- they can then engage in those healthier behaviors or the th- reinforce the thinking patterns that we're trying to change. Mm-hmm. That's this is a really interesting um, point of view when you're considering um, pedophilia and other types of sexual sure. assaults and offenders. Because you can't necessarily tell them that you, you know, you're never going to think this way again. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to supply them with the tools to just do better. Exactly. Um, Recognize that their thought is maladaptive. Have a plan or skills to challenge those thoughts and replace them with more, with healthier thoughts, I guess. And then Mm -hmm. make sure that there are protective factors and boundaries and behaviors in place to reinforce those healthier behaviors. Some of it also has to do with some systematic desensitization. So kind of like this idea of over time reducing the arousal or the, um, the response that people get in response to some of those triggers. 
but um, typically it's more cognitive behavioral type therapy. There's Mm -hmm. also medications that can be used sometimes that decrease like levels of, um, not sure exactly off the top of my head what levels they decrease, but they basically help with reducing compulsive behaviors. So people who are compulsive masturbators or have um, addiction to porn or things like that, certain medications like SSRIs help with that kind of obsessive thinking, which can kind Mm -hmm. of reduce some of it. But those CBT interventions need to be in place as well so that people actually know how to recognize when a thought is unhealthy or it's been impacting them negatively and then they have the skills to change it. Right. You brought up something like pedophilia as well. If something is an ongoing problem, it becomes a legal issue. Someone, let's say someone has something like antisocial personality disorder and then also has pedophilic disorder. They are not going to have the capacity to think through that thought process, build those CBT skills, challenge them, develop new behaviors. And in some legal situations, there are things called anti-androgens that I found really interesting, but kind of horrific at the same time, that it's essentially like a form of chemical castration, that basically it reduces these androgen levels in your body that kind of prevent any kind of arousal or any kind of response to stimuli. So that is used in very serious cases of um, pedophilia or sexual assault or violence um, for people. Well, it's good to know that there's those treatments out there, um, but it's also good to recognize um, that these populations can can get the help that they need. Um, so what would you what would you tell the listeners? Um, who don't have access to a therapist, maybe they don't have health care, how would they address these um, disorders on their own? Sure. So I think the internet can be a double-edged sword. I think it can give people some understanding if they start to research some of these interests or these desires or there's be- these behaviors if other people are experiencing those same things, you can read kind of stories and narratives and blogs and all these different things that can give you an idea of if it is more normalized or not. Um, sometimes pornography can create confusion because it can normalize things from a entertainment perspective that in a reality based setting may not be demonstrated in the same way or I guess that makes sense. So I think a lot of it comes down to ask, doing a little bit of research and seeing if other people experience those same things. And then also asking yourself, does it create distress for me? Is it impacting my functioning, my job? Am I ruminating on these things? Um, And is it violating the rights of others? Like, am I putting any of this on any kind of non-consenting person. And then Mm -hmm. if there is that kind of understanding of um, 
the distress that it's causing the person or the impact it may have on others, then that's where it would be important to kind of seek other support. And there are a lot of resources out there, um, even free resources that we can kind of share at the end. So people kind of know what to, what to look for, or where to start this process. Um, cool. Like I said before, though, my best rule of thumb is like, if you can get in trouble for it legally, it's probably abnormal in the sense of being a disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that excludes, um, uh, participating with a, cons- a consensual counterpart. Exactly. Um, so everything that we've talked about so far is very heavy, mm-hmm. lots of heavy topics. And I'm sure you get asked this a lot of, I mean, every therapist gets asked this a lot of, well, how do you deal with everyone's baggage on a day-to-day basis? Um, I, I had a, there was a time in my life where I was the quote unquote, um, family and friend therapist at at the ripe age of, you know, 18, 19 years old. I think we all have been in that place, especially if we are kind of on that track to study psychology and counseling. Right. You just kind of are like, well, I mean, you're into it. And then eventually it starts bogging you down Mm -hmm. a little bit because you don't have the proper tools to, you know, um, process the excess energy that you're absorbing that you may not even know that you're absorbing. Um, There was a book that I reached out to at the time called Esoteric Empathy that I just want to put out there for people because it gives you tools on how to ground yourself and, um, and it just examined um, empathy from all different angles and it helps you identify, you know, where you might be, lacking in protecting yourself and where you might be uh, stronger. So what I'm asking is, what do you do to protect yourself, protect your, um, you know, emotional state? And um, yeah, what does that look like? Sure. I mean, it's taken some time over the years. And I think that's something that anyone who goes into this field or anyone, even people in the medical field, doctors, nurses, Sometimes people in the service industry, Mm. you get bogged down by a lot of the stress of other people. So you have Mm -hmm. to kind of pay attention to what your threshold for stress is. So as I began to get into counseling, I would realize that by maybe hour five, um, I would start to be a little bit, not necessarily less engaged, but more fatigued, my concentration wasn't as good. Um, And I like, for me, counseling is something that I really enjoy. I feel like it's purposeful for me, I want to give my clients 100% of my time and attention during their time. So Mm -hmm. I found that that five hour mark was where I started to kind of dwindle a little bit. So I set the boundary of I'm only going to see maximum of four clients in a row, and I'm going to space my day out with breaks. So that's one way to do it is to kind of see what your threshold for your attention is, or when you start to feel kind of physically a little bit fatigued, and then try to like, 
separate some of the work. Um, another thing that works is this idea of creating buffers. So um, before I have, or before I start my day, I will usually do something for myself. So I would take, I take the dog for a walk. I go pick up coffee, sit for a little bit outside when I'm not in Ohio and in Texas and the weather is nicer. Um, and then I will start my day and I'll see three or four clients in the morning. And then I will buffer that section of time with something like yoga or um, when it's not a pandemic, I would go to lunch with friends. So I would give myself that time in the afternoon where people typically aren't scheduling counseling appointments for myself. Mm -hmm. And I would take care of all the things in my day that I needed to. And then I would kind of relax, do something for myself right before my evening appointments, and then do about four more appointments in the evening. And then again, to buffer it, once I'm done for the day, I don't do my notes right after because that just kind of reinforces everything you've been going through for the day. I close my computer and then I go and do something for myself positive. Like I don't end my day um, unless I do one thing positive for myself before I go to bed. Mm -hmm. It takes, uh, what do you call it? Um, practice boundaries and assertiveness. <laughs> that's what assertiveness, I've had to learn. Yeah. That's, yeah. Taking uh, care of yourself is not the easiest thing mm -hmm. to do. I mean, it's actually sometimes second nature for a lot of people. Uh, they put themselves um, you know, at the, at the end of the line, they make sure everyone else is taken care of. And I definitely struggled with this. Um, but I learned it. I remember the moment that made it the switch turn on in my brain as I was sitting in my girlfriend's, um, apartment and she was having a friend over and all the seats were taken mm -hmm. <laughs> and I got up out of my seat and I was like, Oh, sit down. And he was like, um, no, he's like, I'm an adult and I can take care of myself. Like this is like, it's okay. Just relax. And I was like, boom, the light turned on. And I was like, he's an adult. If he needs something, he can speak up about it. You know? Exactly. And so when you talk about boundaries and things like that, when you're dealing with, especially some of these populations are very high risk, borderline people with borderline personality disorder, oftentimes have these intense reactions to things, which then leads to attention seeking behaviors. I am suicidal because I need support. I have received instances where I've gotten emails and then texts and then emails like when I'm in session, like I cannot respond to you. So what I do is I, I tell all of my clients that I check my email at the end of my sessions for the day. And if there is anything that is crisis oriented, I will respond. If there is anything mm. that they're just filling me in on or want me to make sure that I know before an accession or is related to scheduling needs, I'll take a look at it, but I won't respond until the next morning when I start my day. So right. kind of being proactive about your boundaries um, with your clients from the beginning is important as well. Yeah. So talking to you before the interview, you'd mentioned that you implement a lot of mindfulness in your practice with yourself and your clients. And like we kind of talked about earlier with canceling things out of our, our sphere, um, 
I want to address some of the misconceptions around mindfulness and um and see what that what mindfulness looks like in your practice. Sure. So the way that I conceptualize mindfulness, and I say that because I think it has become such a trendy word right now that there's so many definitions of it. Um, I conceptualize it as focusing your awareness and your attention on the present moment in a way that is engaged. And what I mean by engagement is this idea that you're you're not thinking about your phone, you're not thinking about how long you've been spending doing this activity. Time either feels like it goes really fast or slows down. That kind of level of engagement in something demonstrates this idea of mindfulness. So it can be anything from the way you think about a situation, your sensory experience during a situation. Um, So a lot of it involves um, these ideas of attention and attitude, paying attention to what's around you visually, tactily. um, And then also, if your attention deviates from those things, finding ways to bring it back intentionally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then being aware of how you're feeling Mm -hmm. in that environment and asking yourself, I always do this why do I feel this Mm -hmm. way right now, you know, and kind of work through it internally. I don't have to make a big deal out of it. Like, um, I'm feeling really uncomfortable right now. Um, no, I can just work through that in my own, in my own head. (laughs) And that's one thing I ask Uh, my clients a lot and it frustrates them at times, but I, I make a joke of it too, because they'll say I'm feeling this way. And I'll just say, why? And I'd be like, well, I don't know why. (laughs) And I'm like, I understand that. But like, take a minute to think about it, like take a breath, relax in the moment, like, and just sit for a minute and think about what that feels like. What, what comes up when you talk about it? How do you feel physically? What thoughts or past experiences come up? And that can sometimes help us identify that why that we may not always Mm -hmm. know, or that we kind of run away from because it just seems too ambiguous. No, it honestly, I had um, an experience once when I was talking with someone and he just kept telling me that what I was doing made him feel uncomfortable. And I needed him to explain why he felt uncomfortable when I X, Y, and Z. Um, Well, I just feel uncomfortable. Well, that doesn't cut it for me. And I can't do anything. I can't adjust my behavior until I know you know, why you're feeling uncomfortable. What is making you uncomfortable exactly? Mm-hmm. What are the emotions attached to the idea so that we can work through it together? <laughs> and sometimes people can't process those things in the moment. And I do a lot of couples counseling as well. And so that relates to a lot of conflict and emotions that come up and trying to resolve them right in that moment that leads to fighting. Mm-hmm. And so I tell people that if you aren't able to identify what that emotion is in that moment, where it's coming from, it's okay to take a step back and tell a person, I'm not sure right now, I need some time, Mm -hmm. but not just leave it at that. You have to take that a step further and say, let's come back to this conversation. And then you have to define a time because if you Mm -hmm. leave it open, then it's never going to get resolved. And then it keeps coming back up. So it has to be, I'm going to take time to process this in my own way. And then 
let's talk about it over breakfast tomorrow or coffee or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. That last step is really important. Um, for sure. I have, you know, I have neglected to hold people accountable. I'm a very expressive communicator. So I want to analyze the conversation after the conversation's over. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And a lot of people just want to step away from it. They're like, okay, it's over. It's done. Let's go. Let's move on with our lives. And I'm like, I have missed out on a lot of conversations because I didn't, you know, hold that person to, well, we didn't, you know, you said you were going to address it. We never did. I need you to tell me when you're ready. Mm Absolutely. Proceed. The other thing I wanted to mention really briefly, since we were talking about mindfulness, is this idea of grounding. And with mindfulness, like we talked about the idea of engagement and paying attention to your thoughts and your emotions and how you feel externally as you're trying to engage in these different activities. Sometimes people find it very hard to shut off their brain and actually fully engage in a task. So what grounding does is it is kind of a process in which you utilize the environment around you or you utilize certain tools to help you kind of get back to that place of physical presence, which then helps your mind kind of focus on what's around you, what you're feeling. So um, Mm. if you've ever seen the movie Inception, they have those um, talismans or what totems, Mm -hmm. I think they call them in their Mm -hmm. pocket. A lot of people use things like that to ground themselves. They know exactly how it feels. It brings them back into that present moment. Um, Grounding can also be something like using your breath to kind of regulate yourself or um, just going through your five senses. What do I see right now? What do I smell? What do I hear? What do Mm. I taste? What do I feel? And that those Mm -hmm. kinds of grounding activities kind of help people re-engage in the moment which then leads to that more mindful, present thinking. That reminded me that I saw this. It's so silly. I saw a meme, but it was really funny. And it was this guy who's, he was, the caption was, when you're feeling that anxious knot in your stomach, instead of avoiding it, breathe into Mm -hmm. it, lean into it and give it attention. Um, which is something that I, I, you know, I sometimes forget and I'll just be like, oh, I just want to curl into a ball and like, forget about it. But now I will try to expand my, um, my torso and breathe into my stomach and try to relax those muscles that are, you know, tensing up. And I think that's really cool. And all of Um, that relates to all of these other treatment modalities. Like you have to mm -hmm. build that self-awareness of what you're experiencing in response to stress in order to then be able to manage it or intervene during those times of stress. So that's why I feel like mindfulness and certain therapeutic interventions that build self-awareness are almost one of the first things that you have to do with people. You have to get them into a good routine so that they're functioning well enough. You have to help them understand how they feel and think and respond to stress. And then you start correcting the behaviors or replacing the thoughts with healthier ones. Right. That makes sense. I want to touch on reality-based counseling um, because I know this is a modality that you implement and I, it's kind of 
confusing to me because you would think that all counseling is reality-based. So I just want a little clarification on what that treatment modality looks like and why it's beneficial to your practice. Yeah. And this is actually a great question because this is something that came up recently for me with a potential client where they saw something on my psychology today that I use reality-based counseling. And so they wanted me to explain a little bit more about it before we set Mm -hmm. up a time to meet for a consultation. And so I described what reality-based counseling was to them, which is this idea that your behaviors and your actions are choices that sometimes psychological symptoms occur not just because of mental illness or underlying genetic factors, but because of the choices we make. You know, if you engage in a certain behavior and then you have guilt about that behavior or something related to that, you have to understand how those behaviors need to change in the future because they're not necessarily the result of any kind of symptomatic thing. It's not the best way to word it, but I think you understand what I mean. So like something is making you do this. Yes. So this person explained to me that they had a fundamental disagreement with the idea of reality-based counseling because it puts too much um, power in the hands of the therapist to judge whether something is due to a psychological symptom or due to a maladaptive behavior. And so they Mm -hmm. felt that it takes away um, the person's subjective reality that they're experiencing and kind of negates that. And it negates maybe what that person is perceiving their situation as. But the benefit of reality-based counseling when used appropriately is that Yes, you do need to challenge that person's subjective reality at times, even though it's important to validate that that's how they feel. Objectively, that may not be how the world works, or that may not be the most appropriate reaction in a situation. They may have reacted incorrectly based on social norms and things like that. And so it's important to then challenge that subjective reality with this idea of realism responsibility and right and wrong. So it Mm -hmm. does give a little bit of power to the therapist to kind of choose when they need to put a little bit more accountability into the person's hands to focus more on behaviors and less on emotions and perceptions. But it's not necessarily a tool used all the time. It's something used at the discretion of the therapist when it's Mm -hmm. pretty clear that there is more of a behavioral aspect of things rather than just purely emotional or psychological. Yeah. I mean, that makes, that makes sense to me. And I, it honestly, it puts more power into my hands as well, because then I can, I can make a different choice Exactly, and I can change my reality and I don't have to play the victim the whole time. Although there are, um, situational circumstances that would, you know, like in terms of like rape and stuff like that, like you would never be like, well, you made the choice to put yourself in this, like, no, that doesn't happen. 
like you said, it's up to the therapist's professional discretion when to utilize that type of therapy. And the reason it's controversial is because not every therapist is aware of how to respond to trauma or how to respond to different experiences that people have. So if they try to use a reality-based approach, it may come across as too confrontational and not empathetic. Um, so mm-hmm. I think it has to be used in conjunction with a lot of other things. Yeah, I agree. This has been a really informative episode. I'm so glad that we got to go over all of this. Um, and for the listeners, we are going to transition into part two of the interview with Christopher um, concerning all things LGBTQIA+. And if you have any interest in that, uh, you can follow up in that episode. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Psycho Podcast. If you're curious to find out about upcoming episodes, you can find them on my social media platforms listed on my website, thepsycho.com. I hope to see you guys again. Thank you.